Well, today we begin our journey into the many heroic, unusual, and fantastic stories told in the book of Daniel. And our time with Daniel will lead us all the way to Advent, the four Sundays preceding Christmas. And along the way, we're sure to read things that will make us scratch our heads or will make us proud. But for now, we must begin at the beginning and set the stage for what will unfold before us in the coming weeks. Our story this morning begins at the end of another story. The first, century, the first sentence of the book situates us in time and fills in the historical background with the mere mention of Jehoiakim's name. He was the king of Judah, the southern half of the formerly joint kingdom of Israel. But really, king of Judah is a title that should be accompanied by an asterisk because Jehoiakim was in reality a puppet king of Egypt. He was not free. In fact, his name wasn't even Jehoiakim, but Eliakim. The pharaoh of Egypt had renamed him after defeating Josiah, his father, the great reformer of Judah, in a war that Josiah should have never gotten Judah into in the first place. Egypt defeated Josiah, and the kingdom of Judah became Egyptian territory. And Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, was promoted to the throne by Pharaoh himself, but, Jeho but Jehoiakim owed allegiance to Egypt. He was a king who was prevented from acting in the best interest of his own people, which means that he was not a true king at all. He was a puppet king. Egypt owned him and his country, and his new name was a constant reminder of this. You're not Eliakim, you're Jehoiakim. You're mine. And with the mention of Jehoiakim, the book of Daniel begins with the end of the kingdom of Judah at the hand of the Egyptians. And from there, it only gets worse. In chapter 1, verse 1, Judah has already fallen from the glory days of Kings David and, and King Solomon. But now Babylon comes into the picture. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. With Jehoiakim on the throne, the vulnerable kingdom of Judah gets caught between the warring powers of the ancient Near East. Babylon to the east and Egypt to the west engage each other in conflict. And eventually Babylon wins out, delivering a crushing defeat to Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish. And the spoil of their victory is the kingdom of Judah. Verse 2 tells us that the unclean and unholy Babylonians ransacked the temple, the home of Judah's God. Everything that was too heavy to carry was destroyed, but all of the gold vessels and the ornate instruments in the holy temple were transported to Babylon, where Nebuchadnezzar placed them in the temple of his God. It was Nebuchadnezzar's way of declaring victory, not only the victory of one country over another, but the victory of one God over another. Nebuchadnezzar was blatantly declaring his God the victor, the greater God of the two. The temple was the, the lifeline of the people of Judah. It was their heart. The temple was where they could access God. He could always be found there. Way, found there. And in a way, it was the, this bridge between heaven and earth. But Nebuchadnezzar defiled and stole their heart away from them when he stripped the temple bare and turned it into a heap of rubble. 
But that was just the first act for Nebuchadnezzar. Because at the same time he was ripping their heart out, he also initiated a subtle plan to eliminate the people of Judah altogether. Not by extermination, but by acculturation. His plan is laid out for us in verses 3 to 5. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans or Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that the king drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. They were to work for the king. You see what he's doing here, don't you? One scholar explains that the Babylonian king was not content to capture the bodies of those who had been deported from Judea. He had to capture their minds as well. And so we set about a process of conditioning and indoctrination. Babylon employed a, a subtle backdoor way of destroying a people through acculturation. Another scholar writes, deportation, education in the dominant culture and language, imposing names and diet are the tools of the empire. Nebuchadnezzar is attempting to turn the next generation of Israel into good Babylonians. Get the cream of the crop alone. Take away access to their God. Treat them well to plenty of good food and good wine. Educate them. Put them in positions of power and you'll win their hearts and the people will follow. It was a highly effective method for the Babylonians and they used it to subdue and absorb entire people groups across the ancient world. And among the cream of the crop that Babylon took from Judah were four lads named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And as a part of their indoctrination into Babylonian culture, they were given new names. Scholars point out that the giving of a new name as a sign of new ownership, and so by implication, new allegiance, was common court practice. Joseph was given the name Zaphonath Paneah by the Egyptians. Hadassah was given the throne name of Esther by the Persians. Eliakim was renamed Jehoiakim by the Egyptians. And Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were named Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in this latter case, scholars point out, names that extol the God of Israel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Names that extol the God of Israel are replaced by names that probably directly or by implication invoke Babylonian gods instead. The alteration of identity was complete. Touching on the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual lives of the people of Judah. They were on the brink of extinction. Nebuchadnezzar and his God appear to be the victors as Daniel opens up. In verse 2, the bleakness of the situation is alluded to as Babylon is referred to as Shinar. Shinar was the place where the Tower of Babel had been built. And it was not a typical name used to refer to Babylon. But it's used here in order to make a point. And that point, one scholar writes, is that it was like some ghastly time warp had occurred. As if God had put history in reverse. 
and taken Israel right back before Abraham was even heard of, back to the land which God had called Abraham to leave. Something was very, very wrong. Everything had gone backwards. It's like all of God's work was being undone, and his promises of faithfulness to his people were being nullified. All bets were off. It was an extremely bleak situation for God's people at the beginning of Daniel. And so a few questions naturally arise. One, why is this happening? Two, where's God in all of this? And three, how should God's people live in exile? The answers to these questions begin to be answered for us in the first six verses of the book of Daniel. Why is this happening? Well, to answer this question, we must turn our attention back to Jehoiakim. Verse 1 isn't the only place in the Bible where Jehoiakim makes an appearance. He shows up also in 2 Kings 24, where we find an answer to why this is happening. 2 Kings 24 verses 2 through 4 tells us that the Lord sent against Jehoiakim bands of the Babylonians and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Why is this happening? Why are God's people facing the threat of extinction at the hands of the Babylonians? It's because of their sin. And so we learn here what God, what God considers to be the just sentence for sin. It's extinction. The loss of identity, death itself. It might seem to you that the punishment doesn't match the crime. Do lies and lust really warrant death? They do when you realize that it isn't just your neighbor whom you have wronged, but your creator as well. We were to be mirrors by which the image of God might be reflected in this world. And instead we're funny house mirrors distorting his image. We've rebelled against his design for our lives and instead follow the devices and desires of our own selfish hearts. For a creator, there is nothing more offensive than the corruption of the creation which you love. I mean, who could blame him then if he decided to just wipe it all away and begin with a clean slate? Who could blame him if he peeled history back to the land of Shinar, if you will, and decided to start fresh? And he seems to be doing that very thing in Daniel chapter 1. He's ironically using the wicked Babylon as his servant to punish his disobedient people. Why is this happening? Because of their, their sins and their rebellion against God. And so it appears that in answering our first question, why is this happening? We have arrived at an answer to our second question as well, is where is God in all of this? Well, he's actively involved in this story. On the surface, it may appear that Nebuchadnezzar and his God are the victors in the opening verses of Daniel. The verbs used to describe Nebuchadnezzar's actions in this opening scene certainly tell that story. Nebuchadnezzar comes, besieges, takes, puts. Yes, but verse 2 tells us 
that God gives into his hands. Nebuchadnezzar takes nothing that hasn't been given to him by God. And so we see that God is allowing all of this to happen. Indeed, he's orchestrating it, using Nebuchadnezzar, as we have already said, as his instrument of justice, so that his people pay for their sins with exile and extinction. And it's at once terrifying and comforting to think of God's involvement in this story. Terrifying in that we see what our sin deserves. And yet comforting in that God has not gone missing. He is still in the picture. Which means that as long as he is still in the picture, his promises still stand. It may appear that we have gone back to shine our back to the days before Abraham and the promises made to him and his offspring. And yet that appearance is a deception because God is still involved in the lives of his people. He's not ceded control to Nebuchadnezzar, but only temporarily using him to accomplish his purposes. Therefore, the promises of God still stand. Promises like what we hear of in Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I'll feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I'll feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. And so God's people living in exile cling to the hope and peace of this promise. Our third question is, how should God's people live in exile? Well, this is the answer. God's people should live in the hope and peace of God's promised restoration and forgiveness. And indeed, in the coming weeks, we will see that this is precisely how Daniel Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael lived. They lived in the same hope that we now share as well. That though our sins offend God, and though we will continue to sin all of our lives, still God will have mercy on us. He will do as he has promised. He'll seek the lost and the strays. He'll bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But how can he show us this mercy while we continue to sin? There's a tension here. On the one hand, he's made the promise that we'll not live in exile forever. He will not punish us as our sins deserve. And on the other hand, his character demands justice for our sin. There's a tension here. There's a tension here that only Jesus Christ can resolve. Because Jesus Christ was sent into exile on the cross. He was made extinct He died. The Roman soldiers came and besieged him. They took him. They put him on the cross. And there he died. But God was silent. 
He was not absent, he was silent. He allowed them to do this thing to Jesus, to send him into the exile of death in order that Jesus might pay for our sins and we could be forgiven. We could be brought back from death and given life instead. Jesus Christ was sinless and yet he paid the penalty for sin because he was dying in our place. And through him, therefore, we are brought back from the places where we've wandered and fled from God in the deep recesses of our heart. In Jesus, we were lost, but now we're found. In Jesus, we find healing from our folly and strength in our fight against the sin which still lingers in our bodies. Jesus Jesus satisfies the justice of God, and he fulfills his promises of mercy to us. He is the hope and the peace in which we now live. And those who are in Jesus through faith find themselves in an interesting place, though. Because though redeemed, we still live in this fallen and broken world that so often feels like a place of exile. In Jesus, we find ourselves having been brought back, but not yet experiencing the full, reality, full relief of that reality. There's hatred in our world between black and white and brown people. There's violence and broken families. There's incredible confusion about what is true and what is false. There's suspicion and addiction and historical levels of depression and anxiety amongst our youth. There's loneliness and suicide. We once were lost, but now are found, and yet we still live in a lost world. And that is precisely where God would have us living as found people until Christ comes again to fulfill his promises to make all things new. In our New Testament passage for this morning, Jesus prays for us before he goes to the cross. He does not pray that we would be taken out of the world, but rather that we would remain in him in the world. Our calling, therefore, as Christians is to live as God's restored mirrors in this world, properly reflecting the image of God to a world that is broken. We're to participate in the transformation of this world until he comes and makes all things new. Which means that our relationships with with money, our marriages, our parenting, our politics, our sex, our technology, our power, all of this is affected by life in Christ. And in this world of exile, we, the church, are called to reflect the beauty of God's redemption through Jesus Christ by the ways in which we live. Even our definition of what makes for a good life in Christ should be a challenge to the American dream. Our motivations are different as well. We're motivated not by shame or guilt or selfish desire, but we serve at the pleasure of Jesus Christ, the King. For He alone has gone into the exile of death for us so that we might live in the assurance of God's eternal love And that is where we shall be forever and ever, world without end. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.